0: Hi, this is Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business. And I want to tell you about a fabulous conference that we're hosting on Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023. In association with Cedulo Group, BDP and VSI Executive Education, we'll be hosting a one day event, Business of Sport, at the home of Lancashire Cricket Club during the international football break in the autumn. The conference will attract up to 200 delegates from sports organisations, private sector companies and public sector agencies from across the country. Our confirmed speakers so far include Gary Neville, the ex-Manchester United and England footballer turned pundit and entrepreneur, Sir Howard Bernstein, former Chief Executive of Manchester City Council, part of the city's Commonwealth Games delivery and legacy team, the Chief Executive of Women in Football, Yvonne Harrison, GB javelin champion and Olympic medalist Goldie Sayers, the chief exec of FC United, Natalie Atkinson, and the chair of the Rugby League World Cup, Chris Brindley. Tickets are available now. Go to downtowninbusiness.com. You'll find out all the information in the events section of our website. More speakers to be announced shortly, but it is going to be a fantastic day. That's Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023, Downtown in Business's Business of Sport Conference.
1: My name is Andy McIntyre. I'm co founder with Tony Faulkner of VSI Executive Education. We are thrilled to be working in partnership with Frank McKenna and his fabulous team at Downtown in Business on a series of 10 podcasts focusing. The business of sport we'll be engaging with some of the industry's most influential figures at a time when the english premier league in particular has become a truly global force fabulous today to introduce david thompson former premier league footballer but much much more than that a man who was forced to retire early and he's going to tell us the full story around that but who's gone on since stopping his playing career with a really interesting and eclectic journey not all of it's been good And he's one of the most candid individuals you'll meet. He talks very openly to us today about particularly the mental health challenges he's endured since leaving playing. The scoundrels that sometimes pursue footballers relentlessly to take their hard-earned money off them. And he's very much a campaigner now to protect the next generation of young footballers. The next step of his career we're also going to hear about is he's studying on VSI's Master's degree for Sporting Directors because he wants to sit in a strategic lead role in a football club and make that football club successful both on and off the pitch, but also enjoy sustainable success where the staff and players are looked after better than any other organisation. So, David, welcome. We're really pleased to have you here. For those less familiar with your career, just talk us through your your early years as as a young boy from Liverpool, dreaming of playing at Anfield and how you were one of the very, very few where that dream came on.
2: Well, first and foremost, I thank you for that lovely introduction there, Andy. I uh, made me sound very intelligent.
1: Well, there's no doubt in that. Um,
2: yeah, where, where shall I start? Um, I think I will start where I was spotted playing um, on a... On a a regional coaching course. And, and ironically, Jamie Carragher was on that coaching course as well. And there was a chief scout there for Liverpool. He was, he was the coach of the course. Um, and me and Cara were on that course. We must, must have impressed because we were both selected then to go and play for Liverpool. And we graduated through year after year um, until we were 14. And then Cara, we both went for trials for uh, the national school, which was Lillershaw back then, kind of got selected. I didn't do too well in the trial. I was really disappointed and I took that rejection quite hard. Um, but I went back to Liverpool, kind of went to Lillashaw, and um, it forced me to knuckle down and work hard and eventually graduated through what I believe is probably one of the hardest football institutions in world football. Um, And I was saying before, I'm not very proud of a lot of things that I did in my career, but that is is absolutely up there with one of them. When you say hard, what do you mean by hard? Well, the demands um, that I put on you to graduate through Liverpool Football Club, as you can imagine, only the very best get through to the first team. But when I was coming through and... uh, You know, we talk about culture, we talk about strategy. The culture of Liverpool Football Club was very, very demanding. And, you know, at times when I look back, I think it was probably too demanding and and a culture change and a culture shift was definitely needed as the time that I left Liverpool. Um, Because it's a very fine line between having a demanding
1: culture and a bullying culture. Was there ever occasions where it crossed
2: that line? I'd say it did cross that line. Um, it crossed that, crossed that line a few times. And I remember going in on my work experience. And uh, I think I was 15 or 16, but they invited me to train with the first team. And I was up there. Doing, we used to do these runs around Melwood as a warm-up. I remember getting tripped up by Paul Stewart and all the lads laughing at me because I would been running at the front. And I was absolutely mortified. You know, and I thought... I couldn't say anything. Not a, Paul Stewart is he's a big, strong man anyway. England striker. England striker. Um,
1: so so, you, so you, you were tripped up, embarrassed?
2: I was tripped up, embarrassed. I was laughed at. I was put in my place. Um, and I think at times, even when I was eventually got into the first team and playing games in the first team, I found it, it difficult to, to deal with when I'd misplaced a pass and it was, it it wasn't very often, but when I did misplace a pass, it was very demanding. It was, everybody was having a go at you. You know, it was, you get in a changing room, you'd have Ronnie Moran having a go at you. The demands of the place were really strict and that's what forced them, that's what gave them that winning, winning mentality for so long. But it was time for change. You know, you can't walk onto a football pitch scared of making a mistake. And I, only when I went to Coventry did I start to enjoy my football and really relax and I got the best out of myself. So that's, that's an interesting move that you made there because you'd, you'd had a season
1: at, Evan, at Liverpool, sorry, where you'd, of course, had lots of success. Maybe weren't playing full games, but were playing regularly. And it raised a lot of eyebrows when you decided to leave the club and move to Coventry. Any regrets?
2: Well, obviously, I regret I regret leaving Liverpool, but I was so determined and so confident in my ability that it didn't matter. I could have gone to any club, and felt like I was going to bounce bounce back. I felt if Roy Evans would have stayed in charge of Liverpool Football Club, I'd have felt appreciated. I, I, we wouldn't have had that confrontation because we understood each other. Then we had a culture shift because we brought in a, a foreign manager, and we had, and he spoke perfect English. Gerard, but I think we just couldn't communicate right. And maybe that was my immaturity. I just couldn't understand him. And I don't think he understood me. I was a really determined, aggressive character to try to to do well and take, take make the most of my opportunity. And I think at times he thought I was overzealous and a bit too aggressive and a little bit out of control at times. Maybe he was right. But maybe we should have had these conversations and tried to got to get to the bottom of what was driving me, what was driving this hunger, how could we channel it a little bit better? or I think maybe I was a bit petulant and felt underappreciated Some games when I was obviously I was man of the match, he'd bring me off after seventy five minutes back in the day when I was getting brought when we were getting brought off, it was because you were the worst player on the pitch and you were trying to make a tactical change. But as I look back now, I think it was times when Julier was trying to protect me. And, you know, if I had the opportunity to speak to him now, I'd say I understand where we were going with that. But it's only when I developed as a man that I look back with a bit more maturity and say, yeah, he was trying to protect me. So you went to Coventry. Who was the manager there? Gordon Strachan. And um, from day one, I felt appreciated at Coventry. Obviously, the, the contract they gave me was... Fantastic! It was mind-boggling for me. It was a lot more than what Liverpool had just offered me as as a new contract. So I f- instantly felt financially valued. But speaking to Gordon Gordon Strackin, he had a way of making you feel so um, valued, not only as a person but uh, as, as a footballer, and that was really important to me. And I hit the. I felt like I hit the ground running. Only the 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 sending off and the. Um, the injuries prevented me from having a really impactful first season. We, unfortunately, we, we were relegated. You've talked powerfully about
1: uh, mental health and we'll come on to that. Did you get any support in managing your emotions on the pitch that were proving maybe something of a barrier to you fully showcasing your
2: talent? Absolutely not. Um, I wish I did. I wish I had, I was a hothead. I wish I had better control of my emotions at times and tried to understand and even be a better communicator um, understand when things we've got, were not going to, to plan on the pitch or difficult moments to react with a clear mind. And, you know, you talk about me, you know, I'm on the sport and directorship course. And one of the modules was looking at high performance. And we, I, we had a visit to Mercedes F1 last week. And they employ um, a psychologist now that works across the board, not only with the drivers but with the pit team, and he's available to members of staff. Now that wasn't open to me at the time, but you know, you, you talk about where you react in certain situations. You've got a, a blue, bla- a, a blue brain and a red brain, and your red brain is always quick and fight or flight and very reactional. With your blue, bro- uh, your blue brain, easy for me to say. Is a lot more calm and assess the situation. Take a step back, take a deep breath, calm down, and make the right decision. Now, that was not available to me back in the day. I wish it was. So the chimp paradox was something of an anathema in those days. Absolutely, yeah. Um, they were they, they Mercedes F1 actually worked closely with the um, the psychologist of the All Blacks, and we we, we both know about the. The culture of the all blacks and how dominant they've been for for numerous years and how they you know have, have been dominant in the sport but how they react to high performance and consistently maintain that high performance you can't do that by being a hothead and their
1: motto of course is uh, is 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 very basic in some respects but but nails it which is no dickheads allowed
2: no dickheads what the hell no dickheads not yeah, they have the no dickhead rule I think if they had the no dickhead rule, I wouldn't be on that. At VSI, I wouldn't be on the course. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so talk us through from Coventry, you, you were unfortunately relegated, but from a
2: personal perspective, people were talking about you. Starting to talk about me, and uh, I think what happens is when you leave Liverpool and, and you leave at a young age without fulfilling your potential, people will always assume that you wasn't good enough. I knew I was good enough to play for Liverpool Football Club and have an impact in career. But I felt undervalued by the manager at the time. And I thought, well, I'll prove you wrong. I'll go anywhere. I'll perform and clubs will see that I'm performing and want to bring me back to a top four club. And then I can be successful. I'll get back in the England squad and you know, represent my country at European Championships, World Cups. And that was the plan. And I felt like that uh, Coventry were giving me the opportunity to do that because they allowed me to go and play various positions, understand different positions, give me a different perspective. Did they give you thinking behind that as part of your development? I I don't think it was. I I didn't strategically plan it. I was just so petulant at the time. I said, I'll go anywhere. And then, you know, I felt really valued by speaking to Gordon Strachan. You know, he really thought I was a top player. And um, yeah, so I I got an education down at uh, Coventry that I wouldn't have got at Liverpool because, you know, you go in your position... You're a centre midfielder, you're playing centre midfielder. Um, What was unfortunate for me is coming through at Liverpool as a centre midfielder, it was so competitive there. Uh, Didi Haman, World Cup winner, European Championship winner, Jamie Redknapp, I think he was regularly in England squad. I had Michael Thomas, who was a superb midfielder, Uh, he won numerous uh, league titles. And then we had the emergence of Stevie G. He wasn't a bad player, was he? Um, So they, what happened was, I think because it was overcrowded in midfield and and I was only small, ten and a half stone, quite diminutive, they pushed me out to the right-hand side. And I think that was, in my mind, that set my career back a little bit because I was never a right-sided midfielder. I could play there, I could do a job there, but I was never going to thrive there. And looking back, that was, a, that was a huge mistake in my career. But going to Coventry allowed me to play in various positions. I played up front, played centre midfield. Right midfield, I played on the left. And it allowed me to thrive and enjoy my, really enjoy my football. And it showed, you know, I scored goals. I felt free, you know. And uh, I uh, I was having a consistent contribution to to the majority of
1: games. So then another opportunity came your way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I was, um, you know, I had a season in the championship. I did so well. I've, I've got to say, it was hard. You know, there's a game every time you open your eyes in, in the championship. But I was thriving there. And um, obviously, a couple of clubs had come looking at me. One of them was Blackburn. And uh, to get back up to the Northwest, I was really keen on that. And to work with Graham Sooness, I was really keen. When I got into the Blackburn team, Graeme Souness was fabulous. Really, he just really trusted you, you know. Go out on the pitch, go and enjoy yourself, pass and move. It was it was like the, it was the Liverpool way. It was it was what I'd been used to, and we had such a good team. We had good players. We had a great team spirit, and that was really contributing factor to a good culture at the club. And I loved it. I had four years there. Unfortunately. I got injured the first year, but my performances in the first year were exactly where I wanted to be. It was what I'd been aiming for. I was really developing quite quickly. You know, I was playing in in various positions on the left, on the right, in in centre midfield, and that allowed me then to break into the England squad, which um, was always the aim. And uh, I finally felt I was starting to get the recognition that I deserved.
1: And then you suffered uh, injury.
2: Yeah, that was a tough one. Um I actually first felt the injury when I got into the um into the England training session. I felt the injury then. Um there was no, it was no specific time where I got, Oh, that you know, that's that something's just pinged in my knee, but it's there was a huge amount of swelling. So much so that the the physio there, I think um Gary Lewin, the ex-Arsenal physio, sent a report back to um Blackburn, who after coming back from the uh, the England get together unfortunately I didn't get capped that day um but I was in good company because there was me Wayne Bridge and Frank Lampard who, who didn't manage to get capped that day against uh, Serbia and Montenegro um yeah so when I got back to the England, to, to to Blackburn the doctor said yeah we've got this report there's a bit of fluid we'll get investigated so what should have been a routine procedure or what I thought was going in for a routine procedure like a scope a little clean out You know, you're back playing again in two or three weeks. Turned into a bit of a nightmare, a 12-month battle nightmare to to get fit again. The the, the injury was a lot more serious than what they thought. I had holes in the end of the bone that needed some drill work. And um, yeah, so it took me 12 months to get back on my feet and try and get back out onto the pitch. But when I got back out onto the pitch, something didn't feel right. And it was quite obvious, you know. So after about ten games, I think five or six reserve games and a couple of first team games, I had to go back in and get seek assurances from somewhere else, um, which led me then flying out to Colorado to see the the, the well renowned Richard Steadman, who'd operated on Alan Shearer, Rud Van Nistelrooy, I think Kobe Bryant, possibly have done Michael Jordan. So I was you know, he was he was the leading uh, a pioneer, shall we say in this micro fracture surgery. So these are, these
1: are stories that the public don't know about or understand that the mental anguish that you must have endured during this period. Do you want to describe your emotions?
2: Well, I think because there was a lot of things outside of my control in, in terms of when I went in for my operation at Blackburn the first time, I never gave permission for anyone to perform Microfracture on my knee. I signed a consent form to get scope and a routine clean out. So to come out and then find out that I was going to be out the game for ten to twelve months led to a lot of frustration and built up anger and aggression.
1: You had no chance for a second opinion on whether this. No, I didn't named.
2: have to no because the the, the doctor at Blackburn he 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 took the he made the decision while I was under anaesthetic really to to you know to get it done when it needed to be done. Um,
1: that seems astonishing that he could make it
2: in isolation of you. Yeah, I, it, it, it when I look back, it does astonish me. But obviously, he was talking to the surgeon, maybe in the um in the theatre, and he, and they came to that conclusion that maybe it saves time on the rehab, you know, rather than come back out again and then go back in again. But yeah, that that really did lead to a lot of frustration, and that manifested itself around the training ground when I was trying to get back fit, and it exploded on the training ground when I realised that it hadn't been done right. So, you know, various fights in the in the in the dressing room, various confrontations with the 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 medical staff. When you say fights,
1: you mean physical punch-ups?
2: Yeah, there were physical punch-ups, yeah. There was um there was a lot of aggression, a lot of pent up aggression and um I mean I remember having a fight with uh, Craig Craig Short at halftime in one of the games when, you know, I'm I'm struggling for form and I'm Maybe not communi- communicating myself well enough, or I'm coming across as angry and bad tempered. And Craig, being a true, but he is a true gentleman. Very rarely loses, loses his temper. He's coming at halftime and he's lost his temper with me. I've defended myself. We've had a fight for fifteen minutes. He couldn't he couldn't separate us. We, you know, we were two wild dogs. And I think after that, the the doctor at Blackburn led me to go and seek help from. Dr. Steve Peters, obviously, you know you mentioned before the Chin paradox. He's wrote that book, and he went on. He was a psychologist for Liverpool football club, and I did a little bit of work with him. Had a couple of sessions with him. Um, I probably needed more sessions, really. What, what, were you, what were you like at
1: home at this point? So you you'd leave the ground. You've been fighting with the coach for fifteen minutes. What, what were you like when you arrived back? You parked your car on the drive and went into the house to your to your wife and.
2: What was I like around my? Well, I had I had difficulties coping with with the real world. Actually, at that time, um, you sort of lock yourself away, and uh, I was probably difficult to live with. And and you know, when I look back, I, w- I wish I'd I'd been better and, and been able to give more to to my marriage because um, that that eventually broke down when I retired from football. So I think it's just a manifestation of all these. Pent up anger and aggression and that lead to some sort of emotional breakdown
1: And very little support you ultimately had Steve Peters, but that was almost uh, after the horses bolted.
2: Yeah, I'd say so, yeah, for sure. I think um, you know if you, if you if you've got a psychologist on hand um, and Steve was a clinical psycho- uh, psychologist as well, so he's not just a sports psychologist he's he's, he's clinical he's you know he he could have got to the root of the problem a lot sooner. And um, I think um, there should be a lot more support to the players now. And I think there is the way the, the sport's evolving now. I think there's a lot, you know, we, we talk about mental health and mental being able to maintain high performance. Mental health is a huge contributing factor to high performance. Absolutely, 100%.
1: Is. And did you think that there wasn't the recognition at the time of that?
2: No I think um it was it was almost like um there was that was the mental health stigma around that at the time
1: because the the macho world of football people couldn't show vulnerability or
2: you you, you didn't want to show vulnerability absolutely you've hit the nail on the head there so you're always ego driven and you're putting on this brave face but all that does manifest it in different ways i remember gambling a lot more than i should have been um because i didn't have the release from football um so the, the adrenaline you know, rush yeah you're looking for that high you're trying to substitute it, but it's not there um and I, I remember doing the same thing when i was um when i when I officially retired as well being bored and looking for that adrenaline rush so then you start going out drinking a lot more this leads down uh, a path of self destruction you know you you talk about the figures for all the manage breakdowns for these ex footballers who retire and they, you know the signs are there you know. The signs are there. You need to seek help, seek career guidance. Tell me about the day
1: that your football career came to an end when when you were told, David, that's it, you're not playing again.
2: That day, I remember, was after uh, after 12 months of trying to make a comeback from the first operation. We went to the, with the team doctor, I went to Wally Range, and I seen the surgeon, I said, something's not right. It just feels a bit sticky. You know, I'm constantly getting that swelling and blah, blah, blah. And I just thought, she said, oh, maybe we'll go back in and just do a little nick here, a little nick there. Or oh, don't worry, it'll be fine. He sat there and he said to me, well, there's not much more I can do for you. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, I think you should think about retiring. And I remember collapsing in the doctor's arms. And he will tell you this, he, he, he when we came out of Wally Range, my legs were buckled. They crying. were they're absolutely gone. You were crying in the um, doctor's arms. Oh, absolutely. And about, um, and it, it still it still hurts me to this day because. I can see it, the emotion. It, in yeah, face it's, it's, it's it, you know, when you look back, it's still probably a pain that I've not addressed. But not only that, it's a, coupled alongside that, about three weeks later, my hair started falling out. Wow. So that was that. And, you know, that shock. It was. It was like I had long hair at the time. It was like alopecia was 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 on the pillow. I was thinking, yo, what's going on here? So, um, yeah, it was just a really really difficult time. So, so you walked out of the hospital,
1: knowing the end was there. What, 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 what did you go home and speak to your wife?
2: Well, what did, what did I, you the, 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 the doctor was saying, oh, don't worry about it. He's, you know that that surgeon doesn't know. we we'll, we'll we'll find out the best surgeon in the world, and that's what led us to. Richard Stedman and when I went out to Richard Stedman he said to me I can fix the knee where you can play high level football he said you won't be at your best but you'll be playing football you'll get that enjoyment and satisfaction but you're going to have to work hard to maintain that he said I'll probably buy you four years at best and he did But I remember after the four years going back over to, I went every year to see him just to get a maintenance operation at the end of every season. And this year I went out for my maintenance operation and he said to me, and it was weird because when you go to the, to to the theater in, uh, to the, the clinic in Colorado, every patient who's been operated on is on the bed. Next to you, you know, it's, there's no like curtains or anything like that. It's just like there's. I remember Louis Saha was two beds down. <laughs> he just had a very similar operation to me. So the doctor comes along and he says, David, he said, there's not good news. He went, you need to think about, is it financially going to be rewarding enough for you to, you know, potentially cripple yourself? Um, I think you should think about retiring. So I half expected it but it was still a shock. But he said the same thing to Louis Saha as well. But well, I decided that I was going to call it a day. Louis Saha went on an unbelievable five years after that. Wow. You know, he went and seen um, other surgeons and other doctors and he managed to, I don't know whether he altered his training program, what he did, but I, I was one of them players that needed to train every day to be at my best. You know, I couldn't just like train Monday, Friday, and then play on a Saturday. This feels to me like there's still a what-if left in your mind. I don't think so, because I did have that four years where I was pushing myself. I mean, I was training so hard in the gym, physically on the bikes and stuff like that. I I felt I'd give it my best shot, and it was not enough. I was talking before that even in that four years that I was playing, I was going from club to club on short-term contracts, I didn't feel I was nowhere near my best. I was a, I was a fraction of my former self. I was playing. I was getting enjoyment, but at the same time, I was crushing myself because I knew I couldn't perform the same stuff that i had been doing years before. And I turned into a completely different player. And I felt, in the end, I felt like I was blocking a young academy graduate's um, pathway. By being there, maybe, you know, I was on a bench or maybe I was playing in a position and I was just being a conduit, getting it from A to B. And, and you know, it was, I was, it was, my game completely changed. And I felt like you could get somebody else in there to do that, pay them a lot less money than you're paying me. So, what age were you when you finally decided that's? 29.
1: It? So, really, when you should have been at your prime, looking forward to playing for England, playing for a top Premier League side.
2: Yeah, and the difficult thing is you, you always compare yourself to the to other people around you or who you've come through with. And, I mean, Stevie G went on, he just accelerated onto a different planet. Um, you know, I, I look at the likes of Frank Lampard and I compare myself to, to that type of player and the achievements that he went on. But amazing guy, amazing, worked so hard in his career. You know, and people talk about he didn't have... The, the most ability, but Frank did have ability. I was witness to that uh, from a young age, playing for England in the 16s, 18s, and and even the 21s. Frank did have wonderful ability. He might not have been the most athletic, but he became the most athletic with his work rate. And I admire that, but I did compare myself on that level to the likes of Stevie G and Frank. Now, people might think it's a little bit absurd, but um, that was my thinking.
1: And we're working with our, our partners downtown in business. This is VSI and downtown in business. And we're going to be running a conference in the autumn about the winners and losers in, in, in the business of sport. Is there any sense that you were left with that you were one of the pawns in that game of the business of sport?
2: Well, ultimately, you're a commodity, aren't you, at the end of the day? And you are dispensable. There's always someone there ready to take your place if you're not doing a job. Now, I remember taking basically three years wages from Blackburn and the chief exec, who was an a, an amazing chief executive called John Williams. I, I think he was a really shrewd operator. And one day I was sat there with him and I said, John, I'm so sorry you signed me with all this hope and expectation. I said, but I've only played for one year. And I've taken three years' wages on top of, you know, not being able to perform, so I do apologise. And he said, David, you have nothing to apologise for. He said, we've paid you with that that expectation. He said, well, there's always someone ready to take your place. So that's when I realised I am a commodity and I shouldn't make any apologies for the money that I've taken trying to, you know, take care of my family.
1: So you're part of the business of sport, the good and the bad. Absolutely. So, I mean, I can absolutely see now why you have become such a mouthpiece for uh, voicing your concerns for the future generation of players and wanting to improve the leadership in sport. So I'm really fascinated to know you You worked through, you talked about John Williams, you talked about Graham Souness, Gerard Houllier. Tell me about the most impressive leaders that that you've worked with and maybe... Who shaped your future leadership style? And you're proving yourself to be something of a campaigning leader. You're at the forefront of, of voicing strong opinions on, on the direction the game needs to go.
2: I think, um, ironically, um, I'd say Gerard Houllier had a huge impact on my career um, and my thought process, And a lot of people thought I didn't like the man. I actually did like the man. I admired him. And um, some of this, I mean, you could speak to Cara and Stevie G and Danny Murphy now and see the impact that that guy had on them and they worked longer with him. So I have to um, give a lot of credit to to Gerard Houllier for sort of critically analyzing situations and, I wish I'd critically analyzed the situation I was in at the time with him. But when I look back, I critically analyze situation now. So I wouldn't say there was one huge moment or one light bulb moment. I'd just say it was a number of conversations with him afterwards and also going through conversations I had with him at the time that I should have interpreted better. But yeah, you've you've got to have, uh, you've got to question everything. And this is the great thing about this course It encourages you to question everything and critically analyse what's in front of you. So
1: so let's talk about the Master's Degree for Sporting Directors, because this is designed for people who want to sit right at the top of the tree in sport. So they don't want to be on the training ground coaching. They want to be the strategic leaders, the big decision makers, the people who make their sports organisation sustainable. Tell me what drove you to choose that particular program and why it is you want to sit right at the top of the tree in sport.
2: Well it was it was a it was a chance chance encounter what led to, I always wanted to to go into my coaching and, and, and be a manager. I think if I'd have fulfilled my career to the maximum, you know, get to 35, 36, then you take your coaching badges, you step straight into a role when your profile's really high. You've got all that experience, you want to put it to good use, but retiring at 29 and feelings of shame and not being able to achieve your 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 hopes and your your ambitions sort shame of shame is a strong word it is a, but it was shame it, it it was shame because you know i i knew what i could achieve and i didn't get there so when it's it's not a rational thinking it it's it, sorry it's not rational thinking it's ir- irrational thinking but that's what leads me to to realize that I did have some sort of emotional breakdown. Even when people came up to me in the streets afterwards, I say, oh, are you David Thompson? Sometimes I'd deny it because I didn't want to get into that conversation of being that footballer who didn't achieve his hopes and aspirations. So this is the months after you finished playing. Months and years. It took me me a while. I actually took, at 29, I I took a few years away from the game and I rejected a lot of media work. While I tried to sort of decompress and and try to come to terms with the situation, ironically, it went the other way because I didn't come to terms with it. It manifested and grew arms and legs and got out of hand. Led to a divorce. Led to all the wrong the wrong things. And it's true what they say: the devil makes work of idle hands, and that's true. C- can you can you recall the lowest spot in those post playing? Is is the one moment you can recall that you hit rock bottom? Um, there was quite a few actually, but I think um, I remember being really depressed on the day that Gary Speed died, and he was a great guy. You know, you can still I can, I can hear it, it now. I remember being really low that day, and. Yeah, that was that was that was I, I was alone, I'd left my family, I was in a flat, I, I knew I'd made the wrong decisions. But on that day, realizing that someone's taking their own life was really difficult. Had you ever considered taking your own life? No. I don't think I think everybody's I think everyone's thought of taking their own life at some point, but I think if you start to realise ways to take your own life, then it starts to become real, and that's when you need to seek help. I think at times everyone thinks, you yeah. oh, know, it'd be easier. I to just end went it. to
1: sleep and didn't wake up. It'd be yeah, easy.
2: I think um, when you, t- I, I did realise I was depressed and I'd had some sort of emotion, emotional breakdown when. You know, you, you look back, and I do use words like shame, shame on my career and a failure. You know, they, these are words that you shouldn't, I shouldn't be associating with, but you 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 do associate with them.
1: And and yet, everybody else would look at you with awe, wow, pride. Yeah, you've you've lived the dream. You've you've played for Liverpool Football Club, and and yet you feel shame and and you almost you, you give the impression of someone who's struggling to like themselves
2: on the back absolutely, of absolutely yeah place. and it's taken a long time to come to terms with that and uh i did have a conversation i think about two years ago with a with a lady who reached out to me after i did an article and she she mentioned words like ptsd which it is a trauma when you look back and having to deal with a huge trauma in my life, um, I had a lot that hit me all at the same time. I had a financial crisis, I had a loss of marriage and a, and a loss of career. I had three all at once. And, um, you know, I, have, I take responsibility for my actions for the majority of after I retired. But I think if I've had the support, the right support and the right recognizing the triggers and what how it was manifestation. I think I could have got through it a lot sooner.
1: So these are among the reasons why you want to be that influential individual within a sports organization so you can implement those protections, those support mechanisms.
2: I I would love to, I would love to. I don't consider myself a leader. I'm I'm a collaborator where I can share my experiences. And we can we can come up with a strategy um, and I love col- collaboration. I think any high performance industry mm-hmm. needs collaboration now it's not just left to one man that's the, that myth has but, gone. But
1: maybe the focal point of the collaboration.
2: yes, absolutely. I think I've got the experience and and the the knowledge and if I don't know the answer, then we can all go and find the answer yeah. and and ultimately it it you, I'm there for the benefit of the team and the club and I want to put that knowledge to good use. Now what I do know
1: is you've really very successfully rebuilt your your business life and your personal life and you've got a clear focus on the future. Um I I hear you talking about your children with great passion, great love. Tell me a little bit about your family and, and how things have now changed for you, how you've come through?
2: I think um, we've had difficult... As family kids, we've had some real difficult conversations. But um, they're old enough now to understand. T- tell us about them somehow. How old are they? Well, sev- Maggie's 17, Florence is um, 14. Very and cheeky. I know how
1: proud you are of them.
2: Um, bloody hell, I didn't realise this was going to be like, this is your life. <laughs> I've never known this before. <laughs> um but they are great. They're really talented and really um, hungry to be successful. And I have a great relationship with them, even though it was really broken and fractured. You know, I've apologized for a lot of the things and I take a lot, huge responsibility for altering the direction of their life. I think they've come to terms with it now. We can have the conversation. We're open and honest with each other. Um, and even my youngest, she's 14, she she sort of understands. And, you know, whether it manifests later on down the line in their personalities, we'll, we'll keep an eye on. But divorce on young children is difficult. And I think there's a stigma where you, you say, I've heard it many times, oh, it doesn't matter. Kids are resilient. You know, they, they, they'll get through. They are resilient, I seen my, per- the, the personalities of my children change overnight when I left and when we got divorced and it was really difficult. Um, and my ex-wife was really, she was understanding. She wasn't, she wasn't a difficult lady. She wasn't a difficult woman. She's still not a difficult lady, but um, yeah, the, I see my, my, my kids' personalities change overnight. So, people use that word very loosely and you've got to keep an eye on it because it might manifest in different ways later down the line and that's something that I'm keen to keep an eye on.
1: And keep an eye on probably because the education that you now have yourself in terms of protecting your children's mental health but also your mental health. So, I, I, I mean, your story is an incredibly moving one and I think enlightening for people who only see the good times, the gold celebrations, the... The uh, the adulation that the modern player gets, the mental strength to deal with it is incredibly challenging.
2: It's easy to deal with the ups; it's it, you, you just accept them and you put it in your ego bank, and it gives you a boost. But dealing with the difficult situations and navigating your way through, you know, knowing the woods from the trees, um, that's the difficult part but that's all about high performance. That's what drives high (laughs) performance. It's so interesting, you know, because having a good culture in an organisation, it's not just to bring you success. It's to navigate your way through the woods when you're having a difficult time. And that's what a good, solid culture of an organisation will drive drive you through. It's there to catch you when you're falling. It's not just there to... As a bit as a springboard to success.
1: Now I think our great friend Frank McKenna, who, whose downtown business works with the public and private sector, and and is massive on, uh, regenerating the great cities of the north. I think he would totally endorse that. You've talked about that in football. He would also align himself, I'm sure, with those comments in business. So, you you moving into more of a business environment now, um, as well as leading in a sports organisation, you've got to have one eye on the business. Is
2: that something that excites you now? you see positive things to come? I do see... I, I am excited by it. And, um, you know, one of the modules on the course was really intriguing. I think it was um, the difference between leadership and management. And um, I, I, when I was doing the, the, the study and reading up on, on, on doing my research, it led me to economics mm-hmm. And I remember having spending two days reading about economics because this is what professional development does. Mm-hmm. It can lead you down a different rabbit hole and you find things that really intrigue you in different ways. And economics and business really excited me, you know, and really, you know, I've made so many mistakes in the past that um, I wish I'd known. The the- I mean, we always look back and say, oh, God, if it only uh, I knew now what I knew, or knew then what I know now. Um, And it does give me a little bit of regret. But I really do think I wish I'd studied a little bit more whilst I was playing or at least coming to the end, looking at your professional developments, coming up with a career action plan, where you want to go, what you want to do. I really believe that should be compulsory to a lot of players as they're coming to the end. Now, I was talking to um, the PFA the other day and we were talking about how can they recognise when players are coming to the end not just because of the age might be 33, 34 but has a 27 year old got a degenerated injury maybe you want to you know feed him down the the the, the advice line the, coming up with a career action plan because your career might end prematurely I didn't get that I wish I'd got that I I felt like I was mentally strong as a footballer to deal with anything now I was when I had football, but when I didn't have football to propel me and, and you know lift me up there, when it was taken away from me, actually I was so very fragile. It's interesting, my co-founder in the VSI business,
1: Tony Fortner, who you will know from his days at Blackburn Rovers, and he was obviously at Manchester City before that, hates to hear footballers use the word retirement because he says it's the only business where you talk about retiring at 35 or 29 years old he prefers to talk about the evolution of your career yes so while you're getting towards the end of your performance element of your life you you are positively strategically working out what am I going to do to capitalize on all the skills the knowledge the experience the highs and lows how can I capitalize on that by educating myself for the next step in my life and I, I just wonder whether that word retirement which is so unique to footballers is something that the PFA could maybe work on and, and talk about the next evolution of your life you're not retiring absolutely. at 35 well, you
2: should call it a, you shouldn't call it a, a, a not even an evolution it should be a graduation to the next stage of your career
1: correct absolutely agree. and
2: you, you you should have to do that you know speak to a mental health practitioner, speak to a careers advisor, but a real career advisor, you know, someone who can plot a career action plan for you. A career action plan is not something I'd, I'd ever done in my life until I got on this course uh, six months ago. Mm. And it sort of propelled me. And it's it's really highlighted an area that I'm, I'm so very good at. And I know I'm very good at it. And it's highlighted an area I want to go down. I
1: think... Among the character traits that you exhibit, and so many of your professional athlete colleagues, whether it's a Beth Tweddle in gymnastics, a Goldie Sayers, Kelly Southerton, or Jolene Lescott, you've all got those core character traits around resilience, determination, will to win, ambition. Do you think um, the wider business community would be well served if they addressed sports professionals with a view ed- to educating them to move into? their businesses outside of sport.
2: Absolutely. Um, There there, there could easily be some collaboration there. Um, How you structure that, you, you know, you get the bright minds, like you mentioned Tony Faulkner before, you know, talking to the PFA, having collaboration and coming up with ideas and enterprise for that graduation, because it is daunting as a footballer coming to the end of your career, whether that's prematurely or not, It's very daunting. The real world is a really hard and brutal place. And I learned that, you know, I've been been rock bottom. I'm fighting my way back up to the top.
1: Well, I think my money is on you definitely getting back to the top. We talk about authentic leadership at both downtown and VSI. And I think you're the personification of genuine, authentic leadership. And I wish you every success with uh, your future career because it's going to be a big one.
2: Thank you for having me. Thank you for talking to us.
0: Hi, this is Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business, and I want to tell you about a fabulous conference that we're hosting on Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023. In association with Sadulo Group, BDP and VSI Executive Education, we'll be hosting a one-day event, Business of Sport at the home of Lancashire Cricket Club during the international football break in the autumn. The conference will attract up to 200 delegates from sports organisations, private sector companies and public sector agencies from across the country. Our confirmed speakers so far include Gary Neville, the ex-Manchester United and England footballer turned pundit and entrepreneur. Sir Howard Bernstein, former Chief Exec of Manchester City Council, part of the city's Commonwealth Games Delivery and Legacy team. The chief executive of Women in Football, Yvonne Harrison; GB javelin champion and Olympic medalist Goldie Sayers; the chief exec of FC United, Natalie Atkinson; and the chair of the Rugby League World Cup, Chris Brindley. Tickets are available now. Go to downtowninbusiness.com. You'll find out all the information in the events section of our website. More speakers to be announced shortly, but it is going to be a fantastic day. That's Thursday the 7th of September 2023 downtown in businesses business of sport conference